Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Aris Comporoso Satanasu and I'm an associate professor of sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Canada. And this episode, it is my great pleasure to uh, welcome Wu Ming Wan, uh, one of the original and ongoing members of the Wu Ming Collective, which was founded in Bologna in 2000, and has since that time published several collaboratively written novels, including 54, Manituana, Altai, The Army of Sleepwalkers, and Invisible Everywhere, uh, many of which have been translated into many languages. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi. Um, so just a little bit of background. Wu Ming, the collective, evolved out of the experimental collective project uh, that went under the name Luther Blissett, whose famous 1999 novel Q focused on conspiracies of liberation and of repression during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And I can say it is a wonderful book that was very influential to me when I read it uh, in the early 2000s. More recently, that novel and the Wu Ming Collective have been the subject of a great deal of speculation, some of which they themselves orchestrated or at least encouraged around the rise of the QAnon conspiracy fantasy. And regarding that, Wu Ming One, who joins us today, has just published a book titled La Coup de Complotto, or which translates to The Q in Conspiracy, How Conspiracy Fantasies Defend the System which presents a highly original and important analysis of the genesis and dangers of this strange mass hallucination. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. And I, I suppose I wanted to begin by, by introducing our listeners to kind of the backstory behind, behind this. Um, so can you explain to us uh, how Wu Ming became associated with QAnon? And what drew you to diving into this subject? And I was hoping you could kind of start us off by explaining the kind of participatory game-like features of the Luther, Luther Blissett project and how that led into our current state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, my starting point is late spring 2018. Uh, we, the Women Collective, received uh, an email, a message, uh, which went, apparently someone took Luther Blissett's old playbook and made it a conspiracy theory for the alt-right. That was the content. And below was a link to an article uh, on Vice dedicated to QAnon. This, this was uh, uh, May 2018, if I'm not wrong. Uh, the sender uh, was an old friend of ours, uh, a fellow traveler, uh, traveling in the Luther Blissett Project. Uh, his name is Florian Kramer. Now he's a professor of visual culture at the Willem de Kooning Academy in Rotterdam. And shortly afterwards, uh, other people wrote to us uh, because the story of QAnon sounded familiar to them, eerily familiar, because basically it's the outline of the plot of our novel Q. <laughs> our novel Q was published in 1999 in Italy, in March 1999. Uh, I co-authored it uh, along with uh, three other people, uh, which later became the Women Collective. It was signed uh, Luther Brissett. Um, the novel takes place between uh, 1517, uh, the year in which uh, Martin Luther presented his 95 thesis in Wittenberg uh, and started the, the Reformation, and 1555, which is the, the year of the Peace Treaty of Augsburg, which put an end to 30 years of religious wars in Europe. Um, 
The novel is about a uh, uh, kind of a long distance duel, an indirect uh, uh, confrontation between two characters, a subversive heretic uh, with many names, you never get to know his real name all along the novel, and uh, a Catholic uh, agent provocateur, uh, an infiltrator in the radical movements of the time. This guy uh, spreads disinformation among radicals, among heretics, among Anabaptists, peasant insurgents, by sending dispatches, sending letters signed with the biblical name Kohelet, in shorthand, Q. Uh, he poses as someone who's very close to power um, and has access to valuable information, which he is secretly sharing. Uh, he starts a correspondence with uh, Thomas Münzer, a radical preacher. He was the spiritual and political leader of the peasant uprising that broke out in some regions of Germany in 1524. Uh, and uh, by sending Münzer uh, letters with false information, he convinces the peasant rebels to gather in Frankenhausen, a place in Thuringia, where they're supposed to fight the ultimate field day battle to liberate the land from princes, princes and bishops and corrupt authorities. Instead, they fall into a trap, a deadly uh, trap. There's carnage and the revolt, the revolt is crushed and defeated. Uh, of course, other revolts will follow. Uh, our main character uh, will take part in them and Q will be there as well to sabotage those revolts and rebellions and to report to his superior, Cardinal uh, Carafa, in dispatches signed Q. Okay, this is uh, exactly the premise of QAnon's narrative. An anonymous guy sending dispatches signed Q, posing as a guy who has access to very valuable uh, confidential information, uh, which he gathers at the, at the top level of, of state power, and he spreads disinformation. We even had the ultimate field day battle on January 6th at Capitol Hill. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's so uncanny. It's so uncanny for us. It's so eerie to see, to see the, this uh, incredible phenomenon. It's kind of like someone started to LARP uh, to, to, you know, uh, do role-playing, a role-playing game uh, using our novel back uh, in, uh, 20, in 2017, in autumn 2017. We believe uh, uh, that the first person who posted uh, the so-called Q-drops on, on 4chan in October, November 2017, um, took inspiration from some elements of our novel. Uh, I'm referring to, I'm talking about the early phase, the beginning of QAnon, before QAnon was hijacked by Jim and Ron Watkins uh, and appropriated by far-right hustlers and entrepreneurs uh, and, and taken from Fortune to HN and then Acon and started to grow out of proportion. I'm talking about the very beginning. Um, we think that the guy's uh, purpose was simply to play a prank um, for the purpose of shitposting, uh, which is far from being unusual on Fortune. Uh, a prank uh, centered uh, on the persona of a government insider sharing secret info. Uh, it, it wasn't even the, the first prank of this kind on Fortune, the real predecessors. And we may never know who, who this guy was. Um, anyway, many people noticed the similarities within that narrative and our novel, especially in Europe, where Q was a big success. Uh, it was published also in the US, but uh, it went largely unnoticed. 
uh, in 2004, some mixed reviews and then silence. <laughs> but uh, in the rest of the world, it was a huge bestseller. Um, there's also something else connecting uh, our activities as Luther Brissett uh, to QAnon in more intriguing ways, I think, even more intriguing than the similarities between the novel and the, and, and the, and the social phenomenon and the conspiracist um, phenomenon. It's the fact uh, that um, the Luther Brissett project uh, was about uh, playing uh, media pranks organizing very uh, complex hoaxes. Uh, and uh, we used, uh, at a certain point, we used uh, that uh, prank playing uh, in order to start a solidarity campaign and do a big counter investigation on the subject of satanic ritual abuse when three innocent people were put to prison in Bologna. They were part of a a group of heavy metal fans uh, and nerds called the children of Satan, i bambini di Satana. They were framed and put to prison and they were kept in prison for a year and a half with horrible accusations and they were acquitted uh, at, uh, at the trial. Uh, but the, the media turned them into monsters uh, that uh, this happened in 1996-1997 in our town, uh, Bologna, and uh, the Luther Peace Project started this campaign to uh, explain that satanic ritual abuse is nothing more than an urban legend, and that uh, those accusations was ba were based upon uh, conspiracy fantasy. And, and so uh, we did a lot of investigative work on SRA, and other related hate legends and uh, reactionary uh, conspiracy uh, fantasies, uh, which uh, contributed to the acquittal and the liberation of these uh, three guys. Um, you asked me about the game-like nature of the Luther Blissett project. Uh, the Luther Bishop Project was uh, a big alternate reality game ante literam, as uh, we say in Latin, even before the name existed, ante literam, before the name. It was an, an alternate reality game. Uh, there's a common misconception about uh, Brissett's media hoaxes, and it revolves around the term fake news. Uh, many people uh, think uh, that the Luther Brissett project was about fabricating fake news. That's very trivial and oversimplifying. It was much more than that. Uh, it was about uh, uh, it was about uh, creating very complex uh, stories dealing with uh, the cultural obsessions of the time, uh, the obsessions that, that were haunting uh, the 90s and were shaping the news in those days. So we created very complex, uh, even cumbersome, life-size practical jokes, uh, like a chain reaction of practical jokes of falsehood, which we called uh, ambienti, environments. We created information environments, very complex, in order to inhabit them, in order to live in them for long periods, long periods. Fake news happen in a flash. They're very quick. Okay, the uh, life cycle is, uh, is uh, very, very, very quick. Everything happens so rapidly. No, we, uh, the Luther Brissett project was about being slow. Mm. We kept uh, inhabiting those hoaxes, those media hoaxes, which we turned into real environments for a long time, exploring and exploiting their repercussions on the media system. That, that's why I, I use the term chain reaction. 
of practical jokes uh, until the punchline, which means until the disclosure and explanation. Hmm. Uh, for example, we invented a satanic cult and we also invented their enemies, a group of uh, right-wing Christian vigilantes called the Committee for the Safeguard of Morals, COSAMO, COSAMO. We invented the, the Satanists, the anti-Satanists, and their fights in the woods. Uh, we uh, fabricated evidence of, of their confrontations. We wrote the press releases of these vigilantes claiming to have interrupted Satanic rituals at night in the woods and prevented the ritual violence and stuff like that. And the media took it all for real for over one year, over one year. It didn't happen in a flash, okay? It was a chain reaction of, of pranks, a chain reaction of hoaxes. And then we claimed the responsibility for all of it. We explained all the bugs in the information system that we had exploited in order to pass those uh, falsehoods onto the media. And, and, and had them published and broadcast because even primetime TV, we reached primetime TV, primetime national TV with this stuff. And it was part of our solidarity campaign in order to demonstrate that satanic panic was all based on paranoia, cultural uh, obsessions with evil, um, hate legends, uh, ancient conspiracy fan fantasies resurfacing in the culture and scapegoating of marginal subject, uh, subjectivities in society. Okay, it was all part of a hate campaign against, uh, against uh, all kinds of lifestyle, of kinds of subculture that weren't accepted by the mainstream. Uh, the 90s were much more simple as a decade because there was a, a much more distinct uh, uh, separation, much more clear the separation between the mainstream <laughs> and subcultures. Now it isn't like that. It's much more complicated. Anyway, our hoaxes had uh, um, several purposes. There was a counter-informative purpose to change the way public opinion addressed uh, a given issue, a given problem. Uh, it was about raising doubts and questions about the way the media were talking about that issue. For example, satanic ritual abuse in this case. There, there was also a pedagogical purpose, an educational purpose, because we ourselves always did the reverse engineering of our hoaxes, exposing our tactics explaining what cultural automatisms and distortions of the information system we had used in order to pull the prank. The explanation of the prank was more important than the prank itself. A third purpose was a mythopoetic one. Uh, that's the term we, we used, mythopoesis. Uh, each action uh, raised the reputation of Luther Blissett as a folk hero. The Luther Blissett project was about hundreds of people using the same open pseudonym, the same improper name, uh, the same uh, collective nickname, okay, uh, in order to build piece by piece the reputation of an imaginary character called Luther Blissett with kind of a social bandit kind of a Robin Hood of the information age. Okay, uh, so you had all kinds of actions and writings and uh, artwork signed Luther Blissett by hundreds of people all over Italy and also other countries. So every action, every hoax, every exposure, every self-exposure increased Luther Blissett's reputation, making the adoption of the collective identity more interesting, more appealing, and more charged with affectivity, because using the name made you feel part of an open community. Uh, you shared a certain style 
a certain imagery, you were part of, 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 of the myth. Okay, that's what we meant by mythopoesis, um, uh, creating shared narratives that stimulated collective imagination and cooperation, collaboration. Okay, um, last but not least, uh, there was a playful purpose. It was about having fun. It was about playing a game because uh, Luther Brissett's reputation was composed of countless pieces that were scattered in various media and this reputation was constantly evolving thanks to ever new stories that flowed into each other. The game consisted in creating and telling them. We work on those stories collectively. We kind of rehearsed them, uh, which included uh, improvisation, role playing, uh, research, etc. Uh, Luther Blissett was a character that we played all together in the infosphere, but also with our bodies during uh, bodily performances, street actions, psychogeographical drifts, uh, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, in short, the Luther Blissett project uh, had uh, several characteristics of um, live role-playing games, LARPs, and alternate reality games, ARGs. Uh, it was kind of a precursor to many attitudes uh, that we witness uh, today uh, in um, contemporary subcultures. I feel like in your answer to that question, you've You've touched on all of the themes that are closest to our heart in our project this year uh, about conspiracies, about games, about counter conspiracies and the forms of activism and resistance that make sense in an age of conspiratorialism. And I know maybe later in the interview, we're going to come back to, to some of these techniques. Um, before we do, I want to I, I want to invite you to go over some of the themes in your recently published book on the subject. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to say that, you know, uh, when I was a, a younger activist and and in school, uh, we all here in North America we all read Q, um, and it was a very important book for us. I remember reading it. I remember buying a copy and reading it and passing it on to friends. Uh, and we would discuss how the book and the story it told about the Reformation reflected on our own struggles. And I remember very distinctly uh, losing the book because I lent it to someone. And then about three or four years later, the book came back to me almost falling apart, but with so much marginalia in it because all of these people had read it and had like written things in the margin. Some, some pages were missing oddly. Um, and the person who gave it back to me couldn't, we couldn't figure out how it had got to them. So in a weird way, I felt like the book, uh, like the Luther Blissett Project created its own kind of reality and served as a kind of prop or tool in a strange kind of radical um, alternate reality game we were playing, but we didn't know we were yeah. playing at the time. So I wanna assure you that it did make its rounds in certain circles here, here on this, this side of the Atlantic. <laughs> Yeah, but, but you're also explaining me why it sold so poorly, because one copy was read by hundreds <laughs> of people. <laughs> That's true. Well, we'll take a collection and send you, send you folks some royalties so you can... <laughs> um, so in the, the book, the recently published book that I think was just published a couple of months ago that in English translates to the Q in conspiracy, how conspiracy fantasies defend the system. Um, it, right in the title, you sort of announced that you're gonna move us away from the, the familiar terminology of a conspiracy theory and towards the notion of a conspiracy fantasy. And I think already in what you've described to us about the kind of fantabulation or fabulation of the Luther Blissett project, uh, we get a sense of why fantasy is the appropriate term here, but I wondered if you could just unpack that for us briefly. Uh, why conspiracy fantasy? In, in my book, uh, which is about 600 pages long, it took me almost three years to, to, to write it, I do a sort of inventory of concepts. 
in order to understand what concepts are suitable to talk about what, we, what we're witnessing, uh, what we've been witnessing in this, in this past few years, and, 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 and what concept is not suitable, is useless or inadequate or out of focus. Uh, I think that conspiracy theory is an inadequate concept for many reasons. Uh, first of all, it's at least partially a false friend when it comes to translations into other languages. In, um, in English, in the phrase conspiracy theory, the term theory has a slight or even not so slight negative derogatory connotation which is absent from the use of the term in other languages and cultures. That's why when you translate the phrase, literally, it becomes unusable or equivocal. Uh, in Italian, German, or French, the word theory has never, any, has no negative connotation at all. A theory is something very important, la teoria, la teoria, a theory, is much more than an opinion or a conjecture, is structured thought, very carefully pondered, thought out uh, thought, okay? Um, as a consequence, a concept that is negative in English, like conspiracy theories, becomes not only more neutral in Italian or other languages of continental Europe, it becomes even noble. This guy is a teorico della cospirazione, or teorico del complotto. It means that this guy, well, he's cool. He's a serious guy. Well, conspiracy theorist means exactly the opposite in English. And this is the other problem, uh, because to be fair, there's nothing wrong in having a theory about a conspiracy because conspiracies really take place all the time. There are real conspiracies uh, in politics, in the intelligence services, in, in other state agencies, in organized crime, in the corporate world, even in the academic milieu, you, you can see conspiracies. In order to have a conspiracy, you simply need two people agreeing in secret to cause damage to a third one. That's a conspiracy, it's very simple. Okay, the problem with conspiracism is that it imagines all kinds of universal, all encompassing, ultra consistent, ultra coherent conspiracies, perfectly planned with millions of accomplices, <laughs> perfectly, uh, put into practice, okay, covering all aspects of reality. Of course, those kinds of conspiracies never take place. They can't exist, but there are conspiracies, nonetheless, all the time, small conspiracies, bigger conspiracies, but not universal conspiracies. But in Italian, teoria del complotto is not negative is not uh, automatically derogatory or dismissive because theoria, having a teoria on a complotto is normal because we had all kinds of political conspiracies in the history of Italy and in our contemporary political life. Okay, so there's nothing wrong in having a theory, which is more than an opinion or a conjecture on a conspiracy taking place. We have to draw a clear distinction between those two different realities. Um, we need a couple of new concepts to separate real conspiracies from fantasized conspiracies, hallucinated conspiracies. For example, if in 1971 in Washington DC, someone uh, had, uh, come up with a theory on a conspiracy involving Richard Nixon and these top aides spying on their political competitors, on their political enemies, 
This guy would have been dismissed as a conspiracy theorist, but the conspiracy was really taking place. Watergate, okay? We have a lot of examples. There was also a conspiracy in order to convince the world that Saddam Hussein's regime had weapons of mass destruction. Okay, so we, you have real conspiracies taking place. In order to, in order to tackle that kind of discourse on conspiracies, on plausible conspiracies, I use hypothesi di complotto, conspiracy hypothesis. While in order to describe uh, that wild discourse on universal uh, conspiracies, I was referring to before I used fantasia di complotto, conspiracy fantasy. It's not a theory. QAnon is not a theory. QAnon is a fantasy, okay? Then I tried to classify in the book the key features, the characteristics that make possible to distinguish hypotheses and fantasies. And I come up with uh, uh, a few key features uh, of real conspiracies and a few key features of conspiracy fantasies. We, if we have time, time I can, uh, I can uh, list them. Okay, real conspiracy, one, have a precise focus and an easily summarized purpose. Two, they involve a limited number of actors. It may be a big number, but it's a number. It's acknowledgeable, an acknowledgeable set of people. It's not everyone involved. Okay. Three, real conspiracies are usually implemented in an imperfect way because reality is imperfect. There's always a mistake, always an error. You, uh, you get to know about them because uh, someone uh, uh, makes a mistake, uh, or uh, one of them is a snitch, okay? For real conspiracy and once they are discovered and reported, which usually happens after a fairly short period. Uh, although uh, the consequences of the, the conspiracy may persist for a long time, but they usually uh, don't have a long duration. Maybe, a few years, okay. Uh, by the way, it is never a conspiracist, uh, it is never a person obsessed with conspiracy fantasies uh, or exploiting conspiracy fantasies, like, for example, Alex Jones. It's never this kind of people discovering and shutting down real conspiracies. All real conspiracies are usually discovered by a journalist, by a researcher, or even by the authorities. Okay, never by a conspiracist. Five, when we talk about these conspiracies, the real ones, we cannot separate them from their era, from the period in which they took place. They belong to a historical phase and become the past along with that age. Okay, they, be, they become history. The, those are the characteristics of real conspiracy. And if you apply them, for example, to Watergate, which I mentioned before, it, 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 it fits perfectly, okay? Conspiracy fantasies are exactly the opposite. I hope my reasoning is clear enough because it's difficult to explain these things in a language that is not mine. Of course, in, in my book in Italian, I, I, I explained in detail. Now I'm trying to cut it short in order not to be, you know, boring. Uh, conspiracy fantasies turn every characteristic of real conspiracies upside down. Uh, conspir uh, uh, fantasized conspiracies, one, have a blurred and dispersive focus because they have the broadest purpose imaginable, that is to dominate, conquer, or destroy the whole world. Okay, every fantasized conspiracy is a universal conspiracy, and the whole planet is at stake. 
So they don't have a precise focus, a precise and easily summarizable purpose. Uh, because uh, it, it's about everything. It's about everything. Okay, they're not sharp, they're very blurred. Two, they involve a potentially unlimited number of actors, which grows and grows and grows with every account. Also because anyone who denies the existence of the conspiracy is described as a member of the conspiracy. Okay, according to any logic, the more people are aware of a conspiracy, more unstable and at risk of failure that conspiracy is. Okay, only in the warped, distorted, uh, turned upside down conspiracist mindset, a conspiracy is the more solid uh, and successful, the more people are part of it. Okay, this is a completely, it is the reversal of any logic of, 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 of uh, how real conspiracies really work. Three, these conspiracies, the fantasized one, are always described as perfect. They're put into practice in a perfect, impeccable way. Everything is carried out according to the plan and in the smallest detail. Everything runs smoothly. Whatever happens is part of the plan. Is if something seems to, to go wrong, it's because they wanted it to seem to go wrong. Everything is perfect, okay? Which of course, of course is impossible. For this kind of conspiracies, fantasized one, they continue, they go on and on and on and on indefinitely. Even if they're continually exposed and denounced and attacked, in countless books, articles, documentaries, websites, Facebook pages, uh, everything, okay? Even if they're continually described and exposed, they go on and on and on. The Judeo-Masonic conspiracy has been going on for centuries. The Templar conspiracy has been going on for 2,000 years in these descriptions, okay? so. They don't become past, they never become past, they never become history. They, history. they are always described as ongoing, as part of the present, not the past. So uh, they are a, a, a unhistorical, I don't know if this word makes some sense in English, unhistorical, ahistorical, non-historical. They transcend every age every phase of history, every, every historical context that's been going on for decades, for centuries, for millennia. When you hear about Watergate or the Italian strategy of tension, for example, a, a specific era comes to mind, the 1970s. When you hear Jewish conspiracy, it evokes an eternal conspiracy that's been going on for ages and has no end inside. So as you can see, the key features, the characteristics, the five main characteristics of uh, fantasized conspiracy are exactly the opposite of the characteristics of real conspiracies. I have a follow-up question on this uh, succinct definition that you have given us on the conspiracy fantasy. Um, regarding your claim that, in fact, uh, conspiracy fantasies function in a way that uh, defends the system, that sort of yeah. uh, props up the system. So could you unpack this a bit more for us? Yeah, yeah. In order to, to answer this question, I need to summarize uh, a few other concepts that I define and I develop in my book, which are the kernel of truth, uh, diversionary narrative, and homeostasis of the system. Um, a kernel of truth, uh, in the book, I devote several chapters uh, um, uh, to uh, explaining that every conspiracy fantasy, even the wildest one, even the craziest one, always starts from a kernel of truth. At the bottom, there's always a, 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 a truth that is confusingly expressed, a real discontent about the workings of capitalism, about the system. Okay, for example, I, I dedicate several chapters to the pandemic emergency 
in, uh, in Italy uh, and Europe, uh, a radical critique of the way that emergency was managed uh, and told, uh, dissecting its dynamics and showing how such uh, way of managing the pandemic emergency could only fuel conspiracy fantasies. Um, conspiracy fantasies are always the translation of a real discontent about a real problem. And that discontent must be recognized in dealing with conspiracism. We must start from the kernel of truth that lies at its heart. Um, conspiracy fantasies about the pandemic are no exception. Of course, it is absurd to say that Bill Gates wants to vaccinate us all in order to control us with a nanochip uh, uh, which uh, they inject uh, along with the vaccine in your blood and that they can remote control you and stuff like that. Of course, that's absurd. At the bottom of this conspiracy fantasy, there is a truth that is being expressed in a distorted way, or at least there's a discontent about real uh, problems that uh, gets hijacked and distort and, and uh, that uh, uh, potential energy for change is channeled towards uh, uh, false narratives based on scapegoating uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, do, do we really think that neoliberal models of philanthropy, healthcare and agribusiness promoted by the Bill Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates foundations are good? Uh, the model centered on, on the market, on the domination of a few multinational corporations, on patents, uh, on intellectual property. So there's a real, uh, real preoccupation, real anxiety, real uh, discontent, uh, but is uh, thought and expressed in a very confu confusing and confused way. But there's always a kernel of truth, always. Uh, there's always a Social, a social foundation for a conspiracy fantasy, uh, and we shouldn't dismiss that kernel of truth. We should try to intercept uh, that discontent in order to prevent uh, it from being hijacked, uh, distorted, and channeled and funneled away. Um, and that's what happens with uh, uh, the concept of diversionary narrative. You know. Um, a conspiracy fantasy is a diversionary narrative, narrazione diversiva. My definition of a, a diversionary narrative is a description of a political situation or social problem focusing on fictitious responsibilities or minor responsibilities or false or unimportant causes. Um, by focusing on these uh, bogus uh, explanations, fictitious responsibility, false causes, um, and, and a diversionary narrative diverts criticism from the real workings and contradictions of capitalism, proposing false solutions, which are often centered on scapegoats. Uh, conspiracy fantasies are the, the most frequent and effective diversionary narratives, but they're not the only ones. For example, all the 1990s discourse on zero tolerance on crime and urban disorderly conducts was a diversionary narrative. It wasn't a conspiracy fantasy. You know, when Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of New York City, that kind of the broken windows theory, um, zero tolerance, uh, the dangers of disorderly behaviors uh, in the urban space, uh, obsession with pity crime. Of course, that was a diversionary narrative uh, preventing people from understanding, understanding that the cause of the discontent was in the neoliberal policies that were being implemented, uh, that were uh, eroding welfare, that we're uh, cutting uh, uh, the budget of public spending on social programs. Uh, so it was a diversionary narrative, but it wasn't a conspiracy fantasy. I would say that a cons a conspiracy fantasies are a subset of con um, diversionary narratives. The purpose of diversionary narratives is to um, 
foster system homeostasis, homeostasis del sistema in Italian. Uh, I call system of homeostasis the process or the set of processes, procedures and dynamics by which capitalism stabilizes itself in order to survive. Of course, the, the word derives from Greek words, homoios, which means similar, and stasis, which means to stay, to stay similar, homeostasis, means simply to stay similar. It's a tendency of capitalism to preserve its basic uh, characteristics and its underlying logic in spite of uh, external and internal conflict, turbulence, contradictions, uh, whatever we have it. Every social system tends to stay similar to itself, tends to homeostasis, but capitalism is the first social system to have imposed itself as a totality on a global scale. Uh, capitalism is everywhere on the planet, so its uh, homeostasis operates everywhere at the same time, at all times. Uh, so every option that threatens the basic uh, characteristics of the system, every option in, like that is discarded immediately by you know, the ruling ideology. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the extent that such an option cannot even be managed, imagined, it's discovered uh, at, the, at, at the beginning. You know? um, in order to uh, be more concrete, uh, an example, a historical example, fascism. Fascism, in all its current and incarnations and versions is the movement of diversionary narratives, is the organized movement of diversionary narratives. Uh, because fascism is a device that manufactures uh, endlessly all the time false interpretation of real problems and false solutions to those problems. Fascism is a kind of a mythological machine, uh, produces diversionary narratives describing fictitious enemies like migrants or Jews, and always putting the finger on scapegoats. Uh, that's how fascism always intercepted discontent, especially lower middle class discontent, anger or rebellion, uh, and channeled those energies into false conflicts, uh, even uh, the myth of uh, false revolutions, uh, because fascism always describes itself as a revolutionary uh, here in Italy, we have the La, Revol La Revoluzione Fascista was a concept that was uh, hammered into the minds of the Italian population in the, in the 30s. Um, so those energies, there are potential energies for change, for progress, are squandered and dissipated. And that's a, an example of uh, how uh, a diversionary narrative uh, um, works uh, in order to defend the system. Conspiracy fantasies work like that. Speaking of more of these kind of, uh, you know, squandered energies, false solutions, diversionary narratives, the, the inherent way in which kind of capitalism as a homeostasis, a shock absorber. I just wanted to ask in maybe a bit more detail. In your book, you argue that the urge to debunk conspiracy fantasies, to burst the bubble, so to speak, uh, it doesn't really work in the way that, that people want it to. And I was hoping that you can maybe elaborate a little bit more on the challenges of, of debunking a conspiracy fantasy and why, you know, evidence and, and facts and these kinds of things don't always help to, to unravel the fantasy. Yeah, uh, very rarely, uh, very rarely, uh, debunkers uh, acknowledge the kernels of truth uh, that uh, lies at, uh, lie at the core of conspiracy fantasies. They simply treat conspiracy fantasies as uh, uh, falsehood, uh, and they think uh, that uh, demonstrating, proving that those narratives are false is enough in order to defeat them. It never works. It never works. I call this kind of attitude to ratio suprematism, which means uh, the belief in the uh, supremacy of rationality. If you're rational enough, you will win. <laughs> of course, it doesn't work like that. It never works like that. Uh, in, in the book, I, call, I, I talk about uh, the balloon piercing syndrome. 
you know, the tendency to pierce balloons like uh, um, a party spoiler at a birthday party, a children's party, you know, uh, with a pin, uh, piercing balloons and laughing out loud. <laughs> That's the debunker, okay? The debunker pierces balloons. And uh, he, I, I say he because most debunkers are men, so I say he, him, <laughs> and he thinks he's fighting in, with a sword in his hand, a sacred battle for truth, but uh, that's not a sword, it's a pin, it's a needle, and uh, um, it's like a Don Quixote thing, you know, uh, uh, the debunker sees uh, barbarians, the enemies of reason, but uh, in fact he's piercing balloons at the party, making himself a, a very hateful figure, okay, spoiling the party, uh, and not achieving anything. Uh, he ends up uh, being uh, recognized and described as a pillar of the system. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes uh, debunkers are uh, simply defenders of neoliberal consensus. Uh, that's not the way to tackle conspiracy fantasy. I mean, of course, I root for an anti-capitalist way of tackling conspiracy fantasy, starting from the kernel of truth, and starting from the matter of fact that they give answers to real needs. They give, of course, false answers to real needs. They intercept the real discontent. They satisfy those needs in a uh, unacceptable way, in a monstrous way, sometimes, like QAnon did, but they satisfy those needs anyway, nonetheless. Okay, so we have to satisfy those needs in alternative ways. We have to intercept that discontent before it's hijacked by conspiracism. Debunking uh, doesn't work. Of course, fact-checking is necessary. It is absolutely necessary to demonstrate in a rational way that uh, a conspiracy fantasy is a fantasy. But that's not enough. And it depends on how you do it. Doing it for the sake of doing it is useless because racial suprematism is a dead-end street. Rationality is not enough. Uh, uh, thinking that uh, rational fact-checking will win the war against uh, falsehood is a toxic narrative, according to me, according to us, the Women Collective. This is uh, a staple of our, of our approach. In the interests of time, we've decided to cut this interview into two parts, and we'd encourage you to tune in to our next episode where we complete our interview with Wu Ming Wan about his book, uh, The Q and Conspiracy, and its connections to literature, art, games, and a gamified capitalist world. So you've been listening to our podcast, Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. 